Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 48. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. Thanks for being here once again to talk about all of the intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. And as always, a huge thank you to those folks that care enough to share the information in the channel. Our little corner of the world is more informed and safer because of your efforts. And Matt, thank you for being here again to share your expertise with us. Hey, Chris, I'm always happy to be here. Love, love, love representing this great, great community we've got going. And it's always a pleasure to get together and uh, chat about some of these things that these nefarious actors are out there doing. And you know what just dawned on me? I was going to check if we crossed a thousand users in that Slack channel yet. I bet we did. We are probably pretty close to it. I'm going to check right now, actually, while we're live on here. We're getting close. All right. We've got well, less than 40 to go. Okay, sweet. Well, maybe next week. Our regular listeners will have noticed that we missed the Intel chat last week, and that's because we're so busy gearing up for this big launch at Lima Charlie. On July 19th, 2023, at 10 a.m. Pacific time, we're going to be introducing the SecOps Cloud Platform, which is an idea that really encapsulates everything we've been building towards for the last five years. It's about reimagining how we do cybersecurity, how we deliver tools and infrastructure, on-demand, API-first, open data formats, all that good stuff that our users love about Lima Charlie. It's an environment where many solutions can exist, not just as a collection of random tools, but as a series of cybersecurity solutions designed to interoperate in an unopinionated way where powerful systems can be put in place at incredible speeds, allowing defenders to adapt at the same speed as the threat actors. I think it's going to be a really great event and hopefully open people's minds to what the future could look like. If you haven't registered for the event yet, you can find the link in the show notes and I promise you it will be worth your time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Chris, I think it's very important, especially those of you that have used Lima Charlie for a while already have an idea of what it's like to use the platform and have the freedom, have access to do what you want with your data, have the ability to kind of deploy, control, develop, build, but really opening this up to the larger information security community is going to be an awesome event. I hope to see everyone there and then some. Invite your friends, bring along a plus one. We'd love to have you there. Yes, sir. All right, let's get to the intel. The first one that comes to us from securityfairs.com. Researchers from Elastic Security Labs have spotted a new variant of the Rust Bucket Apple macOS malware. In April, the security firm Jamf observed the North Korean-linked Blue Noroff APT group using a new macOS malware dubbed Rust Bucket. Blue Noroff is considered a group that operates under the control of the notorious North Korean-linked Lazarus APT group. The Rust Bucket malware allows operators to download and execute various payloads. The attribution to the Blue Noroff APT is due to the similarities in the findings that emerged from Kaspersky's analysis published in December 2022. The similarities included malicious tooling on the macOS that closely aligns with the TTPs of those employed in the campaign. This is a multi-stage attack, and the new variant discovered by Elastic Security Labs is more evasive than what has previously been seen at the time of this discovery, the malicious code was undetected by VirusTotal and has improved capabilities to maintain persistence. Like I've been saying the last few times we've talked, Matt, it seems like Apple is taking up more and more of these discussions. What do you make of it? Well, I think you're continuing to circle around the truth here, which is Apple is getting a larger footprint in the user base, the professional user base, if you will. And for that reason, it's going to continue to grow in popularity as a target. 
And I'm not surprised to see this type of thing. We've actually brought up these types of articles before where we've got APT groups, very advanced pieces of malware. I will say I think it's kind of uh, entertaining that someone spent a lot of time to learn about Mac internals and wrote a piece of malware that got called Rust Bucket. Not sure what that does to the ego, but nonetheless, it's got to be an interesting one to see your malware name that. But regardless, and obviously, of course, I'm aware of what it's written in, hence the name. But I think it just kind of expands the target that you're going to see painted on these types of systems as time goes on. Uh, And of course, very similar to Windows, we know just how popular of an attack vector the Windows operating system is. There's a plethora of rules, detections, capabilities, all sorts of things around it. You're going to start to see the same exact type of approach for Mac as well. I will drop a quick note in here and say that we believe this here at Lehman Charlie for quite a while, Chris. We've had support for Mac from an EDR perspective for years because we've recognized the parity that adversaries are starting to view operating systems as well. And that's not necessarily a push for anyone. It's just an indication that adversaries have viewed operating systems as what are my targets likely using and where am I going to focus my energy? And I think we're seeing a larger focus of energy on Mac now which is what's fueling a lot of the updates that you and I have covered in the past few months, where Apple OS seems to be receiving larger families of malware, much more targeted types of attack, targeted types of persistence. And I think this prevalence is going to continue for months and years to come. Yeah, and that's a good point you make, too. Uh, For our listeners that may not be aware, the Lima Charlie agent is written in C and then compiled down for each platform. So it's got feature parity with the exception of OS-specific functionality. And uh, our Mac agent supports the Intel architecture as well as M1 and M2. Correct. So next up, Zscaler Threat Labs researchers discovered a new stealer as a ransomware named Red Energy used in attacks against energy utilities such as oil, gas, telecom, and the machinery sectors. The malware allows operators to steal information from various browsers. It also supports ransomware capabilities. Threat actors are distributing the threat masqueraded as fake web browser updates. Threat actors used reputable LinkedIn pages to target victims, including the Philippines Industrial Machinery Manufacturing Company and multiple organizations in Brazil. Threat actors employ a multi-stage attack chain. The attack starts when users click to visit the targeted company's website through their LinkedIn profile. I'm curious if these fake browser updates hijack the browser and look legitimate, or if this is a case where user education could make all the difference. Did you have time to look at the attack chain here, Matt? I did. So this one uh, has a little bit of user education involved there. And in fact, they actually called it out. Uh, Hats off to the folks who wrote this one because they provided some really solid analysis, uh, Zscaler, as well as some great screenshots of how this is brought together as well. Uh, Essentially, you're directed or the user, the victim, if you will, is redirected to a site that offers downloadable browser updates. And interestingly enough, no matter which browser you click, you get given the exact same executable from a Windows perspective. Uh, So, you know, the unsuspecting user may not think anything of it, but a more informed user might kind of hover over and look to see where the links are downloading from and whatnot. Uh, So I'd say a little bit of user education would help in, in that sense. The other side of this is the fact that it is, you know, kind of one of those weird looking web pages. And I don't really have a better way to describe it, Chris. But if you look at some of the screenshots that Zscale provided in there, this is not your normal looking kind of corporate, you need an update style web page, right? There's a lot of nonsensical characters in the header and the footer. 
Some of it looks like there's some HTML formatting issues missing somewhere. Some things that I would think user education could really help point out is like, hey, if it doesn't feel or look legitimate, it, it likely is not, you know? Uh, now, interestingly enough, going through LinkedIn is, is another way to go after a particular target base. Uh, it's a way to maybe drive your traffic towards something if you know your victims are already on LinkedIn anyways, or to think of LinkedIn as kind of that virtual attack surface where I may just be trying to spread my malware as wide as I can. So I'm going to use things like LinkedIn, shared newsletters, other types of very publicly available audiences who are used to receiving messages or receiving newsletters or things of that nature. Yeah, and I think there's already some like built-in trust on the user's part just coming through a platform like, like LinkedIn. So Yeah, and that's the tough part. That's the tough part, too, is like, can we trust all the platforms? And as weird as it's going to sound to some folks, a random arbitrary link that you receive in a Facebook thread should be given the same exact scrutiny you give to one in LinkedIn as well. Just because a lot of folks think it looks and feels a little more professional does not mean adversaries haven't found a way to, to make it exper- or to make that experience a little more malicious. Yeah, they'll be everywhere and try everything. That's what we're uh, here for, Chris. That's right. So next one up, uh, in mid-May 2023, Threat Actor 453, also known publicly as Charming Kitten or APT42, sent a benign conversation lure masquerading as a senior fellow with the Royal United States Institute to a public media contact for a nuclear security expert at a U.S.-based think tank focused on foreign affairs. That's a mouthful. Uh, The email solicited feedback on a project called Iran in the global security context and requested permission to send a draft for review. The initial email also mentioned participation from other well-known nuclear security experts. Threat Actor 453 is previously masqueraded as. In addition to offering an honorarium, Threat Actor 453 eventually used a variety of cloud hosting providers to deliver a novel infection chain that deploys the newly identified PowerShell backdoor Gorjoel Echo. I've made several comments about the rise in Apple-focused malware, including at the beginning of this podcast. I really think it is because affluent customers, which are more likely to be these high-value targets, tend to be Apple users. Does that make sense, Matt? It does in some cases. Uh, You're not wrong about maybe going after kind of uh, Mac users as a whole. Maybe if it was more about like an info stealer campaign or some sort of spam or phishing campaign where your goal was to cast a wide net and say, let me see who I pull back in this thing. When we get to, uh, you know, phishing lures like this, this is very, very targeted, in my opinion. Uh, A phishing lure posing as a senior fellow with the Royal United States Institute with a looking for contact on nuclear security at a U.S.-based think tank titled Iran in the Global Security Context, right? The more adjectives we add on to this, Chris, the more we're getting close towards, like, what are we talking about? Like six people in the world who this, you know, who would actually fit this description, you know? Um, and I think what you're seeing here is is evidence of a very, very targeted lure, a very targeted fish being sent to either a group of people who would be interested in this type of thing or, you know, a group of people who would want to read the outcome from that. And then depending on kind of how the email was initially put together. Now, to your point, I think what we are seeing is we're likely seeing a representation of Apple computers amongst that group and amongst that population. This contrasts very differently with, I would say, maybe five, six years ago. The contents of that email, the the focus, the subject, the lure itself was still there, but now the target has changed a little bit. And I I do think we're going to continue to talk about it because it's now the second time on this episode alone that we've brought up the idea of Max being a little bit of a higher target surface now. And here's just another example of that. 
All right. Well, let's keep moving. Uh, CISA and the FBI warned on July 6 of new TrueBot malware variants deployed on networks compromised using a critical remote code execution vulnerability in the network's auditor software in attacks targeting organizations across the United States and Canada. The bug tracked as CVE-2022-31199 enables unauthorized attackers to execute malicious code with the system user's privileges. TrueBot is a malware downloader linked to the Russian-speaking silent cybercrime group and used by threat actors associated with the Fin11 group, and has been used to deploy CLOP ransomware on compromised networks since December 2022. I've never heard of Networks IT Systems. The article from Bleeping Computer says their products are being used by over 13,000 organizations worldwide, including some biggies like Airbus, the UK's National Health Service, and Virgin. Do you know anything about this company, Matt, and anything about the attack vector that stands out? My read was that attackers still need to gain that initial foothold through phishing or something like that before they could exploit this bug. I do. So actually, uh, I think it's Netrix. I think it's N-E-T-W-R-I-X, I think. But it, on how to pronounce that exactly is probably anyone's guess, I would say, except for the folks who know how to pronounce it. Full disclosure, their uh, headquarters is very, very close to me. So I am I am well familiar with this company, IT security company. They develop software that helps companies identify like sensitive data, deal with compliance and things like that. So they are a, a very popular company in that aspect. And I think their customer base of 13,000 feels about right, if you will, that that seems to be you know, something that uh, I, they're, they're a very big company. Let's put it that way. Where this is an interesting one is first off that, you know, we, we, we look at that customer base. 13,000 is not a small customer base whatsoever. That almost feels like move it, move it side, size customer base. Number one, number two, you got to think about the functionality of this type of system. This is a system that helps guarantee sensitive data and, uh, you know, auditing and compliance and things like that. And it is the Netrix auditor server itself that is impacted by the bug and allows users to uh, execute malicious code with the system user privileges, which is the highest local system account that's on there. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, leads to this eventual long attack chain that ends up with CLOP ransomware being put out there, which is just continued to cause headaches everywhere out there that we see CLOP just cops up again and again and again. That being said, I, I think this is yet another example of a third-party supplier or trusted supplier, uh, for, uh, unfortunately, falling victim to a vulnerability that is going to open up even more doors for attackers to walk through. Um, the outstanding question is probably, was Netrix a victim of another vulnerability and then they suffered a compromise or were they the actual target itself? Um, only probably a few folks doing the IR will know the answer to that one. But really, the focus comes down to if I'm a Netrix customer, how am I impacted? Is my data going to be impacted by this? Is my functionality going to be impacted? What are the mitigations in place and how can we go about, you know, kind of getting uh, getting used to fixing that? I will make a note for everyone here. Netrix has installed or has provided, I should say, patches available for this. Uh, version 10.5 is the version you want to be at. They also highly recommend utilizing multi-factor authentication for phishing and blocking against those types of systems and functionalities. The one thing that I don't know, Chris, is whether this is internet-facing software or if it's something that you need to kind of be in a network to then gain access to. And I think that's what you were kind of calling out when you first brought this topic up. This is not an internet-facing appliance like we've talked about with maybe MoveIt or a VPN appliance or something of that nature. 
this is something that you need to be inside of a network. But if you come across it, you likely will come across some form of privilege escalation that you can then use to execute remote code. And as much as I'd hate to see it, and I really hope it's not there, unfortunately, a lot of times third-party software does get deployed and implemented with really high privileges. And being able to execute a system means you might have access to those other credentials. And if any of those credentials are way overprivileged, it's going to make it pretty easy for an adversary to move throughout a network. And that's really what we don't want to have happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my apologies to the folks at Netrix. Uh, It's a very tough industry to know how to pronounce things. So um. (laughs) I'm also guessing here, too. I think I'm I'm going phonetic off that one, but uh, we we might both be wrong. You never know. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So Trend Micro is reporting a new ransomware family in its variant name, Big Head, that emerged in May, with at least two variants of this family being documented. Upon closer examination, the researchers discovered that both strains shared a common contact email in their ransom notes, leading to the conclusion that the two different variants originated from the same malware developer. Once successfully executed, the malware drops a ransomware note on the desktop, in some subdirectories, and uh, the app data folder. It also changes the wallpaper of the victim's machine. The article is quite technical, and reading through it, I see a few of the same old things. Deleting shadow copies, creating auto-run registry keys, nothing really jumped out for me as new. Was there anything about this malware that you found interesting? And in what constitutes a new family versus just reinventing the wheel? Yeah, so this is this is a tough one. Because of the points that you brought up, this is a fantastic technical analysis. Hats off to uh, the, the various folks over at Trend Micro who brought this one up. I love the technical analysis. I love the walkthrough. I love the different types of, uh, you know, examples that they gave and things like that. However, I think your point of like, well, how new is new and where do we call it new? And I've actually been down this this road before where I've identified a malware sample that I considered to be a new sample and kind of blogged about it, spoke at a conference about it. This was This was way back, almost eight years ago now. And another company came along and said, oh, no, we've been tracking that thing for a while, you know? And really what the point there comes down to is, is it a new variant for those of us who are looking at it at a certain organization, or is it new across the industry as a whole? You know, and, and, and Chris, I think I look at like kind of modern IT software in, in, a, in the same exact lens. You and I could discover a podcast recording software tomorrow and be like, oh, this is the newest, greatest thing ever. There's going to be someone out there who's like, guys, I've used this for a year. You know what I mean? So it's one of those like uh, very, very, very perspective driven decision on whether or not it's new or whether or not it's, it's unseen or it's out there. The other thing that might be called out here, because the article does bring up how there are versions of the malware. There are uh, the same contact email, which may or may not lead to the same type of malware developer. Uh, they go into the different routines and the different impacts. And I will say, again, you called this out directly. There's a lot of the same types of adversary techniques in there. The other thing that might be part of kind of denoting this as a new variant or a new family might also be the way that the techniques are kind of brought together. The way that the techniques have been combined is something that they haven't seen before. This can definitely make it a little bit confusing for folks. Maybe I'll offer a little bit of advice on this one here. One thing to remember is just because it's a new strain of malware, as Chris pointed out, doesn't mean it ignores some of the old tried and true adversary techniques, right? And I'll say you don't necessarily want to think of, am I defended against a piece of malware specifically 
I usually tend to go the route of, am I defended against techniques that that malware might utilize or things that that malware might do? So for example, uh, a piece of malware may be configured to delete volume shadow copies, which this piece of malware is configured to do. You don't want to block against this malware. You want to defend or detect or block, if it's so inclined, against volume shadow copy deletion. And what that does is it gives you a wider spread of coverage because if I go after a particular malware family, it's going to be very, very hash-based, very static indicator-based versus if I go against techniques and behavior that a piece of malware may do, I get coverage for that and then some. And I might also have a chance of catching an adversary's attack chain a little bit earlier on. So volume shadow copy deletion is something that you kind of see at that ransomware stage to pre- to prevent volume shadows being used from a backup perspective. So I'd want to maybe focus on some earlier techniques and say, hey, is there something earlier that I could look for? And when I say earlier, I mean in the linear pattern of an adversary moving through it. Are those are there things in the earlier part of the intrusion that I could look for a little bit differently that are not just you know the use of a hash or, or the use of some other static indicator, which would be easily defeated by an adversary? And the way to get there is to look at the, the droppers, some of the initial stages and things that get dropped on in the environment. And this is where, once again, Chris, adversaries aren't really reinventing the wheel here, right? Uh, one of the binaries that gets dropped as part of this malware is called 1.exe. I mean, 1.exe is tried and true malware discussion. You know, if you, if you see an executable called 1.exe, I would flag on that like you can't imagine. Who on earth names them legitimately, you know? I used to take that vantage point, Chris, until one time I ran into a sysadmin who was teaching himself programming and was naming his test binaries 1, 2, 3, and 4.exe and storing them, guess where? users public and (laughs) sure enough it was one of those cases where i came across that thing and i was like oh i got malware here we go and since i was like actually those are my test scripts i'm just i'm doing a thing i'm trying to learn how to do a thing um but nonetheless it was good to have that detection in place so i i agree with you wholeheartedly i don't think this is necessarily like a ground shaking earth shattering form of new technique revelation maybe more of an uncovering of the way that they're chained together It's also, and this will be my last little note on this, it may also stem from the malware author themselves. So, you know, Chris, let's say you and I wrote malware and we wrote it in Python, converted to an EXE for a year. And then a year later, we wrote malware in Go, right? Just hypothetically. Well, you and I didn't do anything new from a malware perspective, but we did something new from a us perspective. So if we were to put our signature on that executable, someone would come along and would say, oh, these guys shifted their tactics. This is new for them. And therefore it's new for us, but it's not new for the industry. One, two, three. That sounds like the variable names I used in my first year computer science classes. (laughs) You can guess what night classes this individual was taking when he was writing his brand new executables. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so this is the last one we have time for today. Uh, Researchers from Zscaler Threat Labs have recently uncovered a concerning development, a new targeted attack campaign striking businesses in the Latin American region. This sophisticated campaign employs a Trojan that follows a multi-stage infection chain, utilizing specially crafted modules throughout each stage. 
These modules are custom designed to carry out malicious activities such as injecting harmful code into remote processes, circumventing user access control, and evading detection by sandboxes through clever techniques like system reboots and parent process checks. The ultimate payload of this campaign is a new Latin American Trojan called Tutoin, again, not sure if I'm saying that right, which incorporates a unique XOR decryption technique to decode its configuration file. Once decrypted, the Trojan gathers system information as well as data pertaining to installed browsers and the Topaz OFD protection module before sending it to the command and control server of the attackers in an encoded format. This one sure sounds interesting. I'm not familiar with the Topaz OFD protection module. It sure feels like the work of an APT. Is there anything we can glean from their techniques or even the target region? Yeah, this is uh, another type of very industry-focused, in, in my opinion, this is another type of very industry-focused knowledge of who you're going after, knowledge of your victim type of attack in this case. Um, I do think that this is, you know, it, it, it is a, a, a protection module that you'll see installed on systems and things like that. I believe it's associated with banking security, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's associated with banking security. And it could be a really easy way to determine if you're on the right system, if you're on the thing that you're looking for. You know, uh, again, I'll use you and I as an example, right? Let's say I was going to target folks who made podcasts. One of the easiest ways to do that would be to look to see if they have particular podcast software or they visit podcast creation links, in which case I would know I'm dealing with someone who's a podcaster. And I feel like this is probably very similar in that aspect. I, I don't know. I can't say just yet if it is an APT one. I, I think what you've called out is, is leaning towards it for sure, because it is definitely a very targeted approach. This is not some sort of, you know, run of the mill spam that just gets sent out to everyone down there. Uh, I will say that the Latin American region, when it gets targeted or when it gets sought after by adversaries, a lot of malware usually follows this. There's some sort of either language recognition or some sort of software-based recognition that says, yup, you're in the right part of the world. And then the malware goes and does what it does after that. And as you mentioned, the Trojan will gather, again, system information and data pertaining to browsers and the OFD protection module sending it back to a C2. This is basic system reconnaissance. It wants to understand as much as it can about that victim system before continuing on to the next stage. So if I'm an adversary looking to build a target list or an infected list that I'm either going to use or sell off at some point, being able to come back and say, hey, I've got you know, 10, 20, 30, 100 systems with this thing installed likely gives an indication of what those systems might be used for just like we use any other application or server to help profile the functionality of a particular system. Yeah, not the spray and pray, but just trying to really figure out who they're infected and, and where to spend the effort. Exactly, exactly. Now, again, I will note that um, the Topaz OFD protection module is something that uh, as we were going through and I was looking through this article, I saw it pop up on multiple different types of forums across the board. However, where it really gets representation is on Latin American driven sites or sites that are kind of written in uh, Brazilian Portuguese is where I saw a lot of information about it. Um, and it does appear to be related to a particular bank in that country is where it comes up. So again, I would probably consider this to be some sort of system reconnaissance, victim identification that can then subsequently be used against them. But I think this is going to continue to happen again, as you know, there's clearly someone who wants to go after that particular sector. 
And I will say that the financial markets of Latin and South America tend to be a little less inherently secure than you see in other parts of the world, just from my personal experience, which opens them up to attacks like this. Right. And given the financial nature of the targets, it might not be APT after all. It could just be financially motivated. That's right. Everyone wants a little bit of extra money in their pocket, right? Yeah. Uh, it's always so fascinating trying to figure out and reverse engineer what's going on with these things. So It's always a great time. Chris, I'm glad we got a chance to get together and figure this out, too, because you never know, you know, six, ten months down the line, you and I might be like, hey, remember that time we talked about a thing? And sure <laughs> enough, here it materializes into who knows what. But yes, absolutely. So thanks again for joining me this week. I know it's a busy one for us, and uh, I'm glad we got it in because uh, it's good to get the information out there. So appreciate you, sir. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. And thanks again to everyone over at our Slack, over in our Intel channel. We absolutely love Keep the updates coming. We'll uh, be back next week. And that concludes episode number 48 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.